Happy Memorial Day. Can we just talk black and white? The weekend review. Doc, how you doing today? I am doing fine, but it does not seem like a very normal Memorial Day weekend coming up. Well, you know what? The, some of the uh, bands have been listed, lifted across the uh, country. Things are getting better. You know, I can see the sun shining again. I can see it in the distance. Things are going to get better. A lot of things are happening in the last couple of weeks. I see where they're charging somebody in the Aubrey case uh, down in Georgia. A uh, third person is going to be charged in that. I see that the president had a uh, mask on for the first time up in Michigan. A lot of things are happening. A lot of things are getting better. The president, you know, deciding, hey, maybe he should wear a mask as well. Uh, but, you know, I, I have a lot of questions, you know. Did we open too soon? Was it, would, Did we open based on dollars and cents, C-E-N-T-S, or did we open based on good cents? <laughs> so, you know, a lot well, of questions a, I got to that. Well, that's, those are good questions. And you know, we always say this is black and white, can we just talk? And then we have the subtitle, which is the weekend review, because we're trying to take a look at issues and news and things that are going on. And we look at them in, uh, or actually through a lens of black and white and uh, from perspectives. And then we try to summarize it every week by also looking through the lens of Christ-likeness. And so uh, it's, a, it's a interesting approach. And those questions, I think, are the good ones. And, of course, yeah, we've also uh, had something fun. There's not been much sports on TV, unless you like NASCAR. But ha- have you been watching the uh, Last Dance series? Yeah, I've watched that several times, several times. You know, why, why you ask that? But, you know, you, you brought up a good point, how we look at these through different lenses, right? You know, America yeah. has been looking at black and white through black and white lenses since it's, uh, basically since its inception. You know, we've always looked at it from your perspective, and we came to conclusion based on where we sat and what we saw and how it was affected us. But, yeah, go ahead with your question the last dance, Michael Jordan and company. Well, I, we and we can't get back to that. I, I just. I just thought that was, it was a great series, and uh, they're, they're looking at a great man. And last week we talked about who we thought the GOAT was. Was it LeBron or was it Michael? Uh, and uh, in passing, by the way, I, I, one of these good days, uh, I'm going to have to challenge you to a game of one-on-one because you and I both played a little basketball back in the day, and I think I could beat you. I doubt that. I doubt that. <laughs> uh, I'm sure my vertical leap is uh, higher than yours, and uh, <laughs> I'm sure my, my jump shot is – it's cleaner than yours. My follow through is a little better. So when you want to, when you want to do that. So you know that the Achilles are different in different uh, species of humans than they are in other species. You know <laughs> that, right? Is that why they say white people can't jump? I don't know why they say that. I'm just saying that there's a difference in the Achilles from what I read somewhere. Some scientists well, I've read were doing. That too, huh? and, uh, you saw that? Unfortunately, all the other white athletes in my school could outjump me too. So that really put me at the bottom of the bottom. Yeah, uh, so yeah. I have a sharp elbow, though. I learned to use that pretty early on. Well, you know what? I'm too old to probably be playing basketball now. You know, I like to own a couple basketball teams. Can you make that happen? I better still like to get them 40 acres you got out there that belong to me, them 40 <laughs> acres and that mule. We can play horse. Yeah, yeah. You know what? That that would be interesting, a game of horse. Yeah. <laughs> I, we'll, we'll practice our jump shots and have a game of horse one day. Yeah, I like that. I like that. I like we'll that. We'll do it. We'll put microphones on and we'll record black and white. Can we just talk while we're playing a game of horse? That would be kind of interesting. That'd be fun. That'd be fun. So, Doc, have you? No, been- I, I actually uh, brought it up because I was just thinking about our show and and they have Michael Jordan on there. And you and I have talked a little bit about long term solutions because it's easy for it to point out the problem sometimes, even though I think that's even controversial. 
but solutions are harder to come by. And, and the, over the last few weeks, we've talked about some of the things that need to happen, especially things like education changes, mentality changes, and so forth. Uh, but uh, one of the things I thought was interesting is how much you learn about the importance in Michael Jordan's life from uh, male role models that were just powerfully impactful. There would not be uh, his airness. There would not have been a man with the level of success uh, that he has enjoyed and the influence he's had on so many millions around the world had it not been for a handful of male role models. And I'm thinking, of course, most of all about James Jordan, his daddy, an Air Force veteran who just instilled discipline. Uh, there was a work ethic from the earliest of ages, a tough love from a dad was just the norm. You know, daddy wasn't trying to be his best buddy. Dad was uh, shaping him into the man that he would become. And, uh, you know, during the documentary, he talks about how that this was a pivotal thing in his life and in his career. He said that his dad was his rock. He said they became very close. He talked about his daddy's advice. And then he, uh, he talked about being, I think, in the ninth grade and how that he got suspended three times in school in one year. And uh, his father put him aside and gave him a pretty serious ultimatum. Basically said, look, uh, you don't, you're not heading in the right direction. And you're doing all this knucklehead stuff. And if you do any more of it, you can just forget sports. I'm not going to let you play. <laughs> and that, you know, those influences really, really set him in the right direction. Because he had, he had a dad that cared and a dad that uh, built into his life. And then, of course, he talks about Dean Smith, the legendary UNC coach, and how that he kind of became his second dad, in a sense. Uh, I think he actually referred to him as his second father. Um, and so he said later on, I think in a Sports Illustrated um, article, he talked about other than his dad, that the biggest influence in his life was Coach Smith. And he referred to him as a mentor and as a teacher and somebody who instilled values and uh, somebody who was there for him when he, when he needed it. And, uh, and he said, he, and he, I think the statement he said was, he didn't just teach me the game of basketball. He taught me about life. And so I think on the white role, changing and improving white America, black America, Hispanic America, Asian American, all America, uh, one of the things I think we need to discuss a little bit is about the importance of something that I've admired about you, and especially considering your situation that you went through and the, you know, the tragic, sorrowful losing of your wife and then having to raise seven boys and you just stuck it out. You took responsibility. How important do you think all that is and not only raising the next generation of great Michael Jordan type athletes, but just in society. So, you know, I was listening as you were saying that, and I was just Googling, you know, my favorite thing is to Google facts. And I was looking at something, it says 74.3 children percentage, 74.3 white children under the age of 18 grew up with both of their parents, while 38.7% of African Americans um, Grow up. Really? Yes. And so basically the numbers double. And so, you know, there's a lot of factors. You know, you probably look at that and you like you just said, really, you know, that 74% of, of white uh, young men and women grew up with both of their parents while um, it's half of that when you look at the African-Americans family. But there are a lot of factors that play into that. We look at the uh, the prison, the incarceration, uh, the number of African-American males that are incarcerated. So there are a lot of factors that grow and go into that. And so, you know, 
you may not remember this, but back in the 60s, I'll never forget this. Back in the 60s, um, if you were on like subsidized living, a two parents could not live in what they call the housing projects, right? Because they would say both of your parents living there together make too much money. Well, too much money was not enough to move you to where you could find a suitable living. So what meant then is that either somebody had to come in after hours or pretend they didn't live there. Their name could not be on the lease. There are so many things when you look back over our history that have caused the divide of the African-American family. You know, and a lot of this is not, you don't want to just go, um, what I would say, pointing blame or casting aspersions, but there are so many things that have happened throughout African-Americans, the history of blacks in America, that have caused us to be at this place. You know, you look at education, you look at uh, health issues, you look at access to the system, you look at equal opportunity, equal employment. There are so many things to where, you know, if you look in, in our history book, that African-Americans were not even considered a full man. Was it three-fourths, three-fifths of a human being? Some some uh, crazy fracture that they came up with. But the point I'm making is that you're absolutely right that when you have two parents in a household, that's the balance. You know, if you just look at it and you just stand them parallel to one another, it strikes the balance of a child growing up in between that. Because, if you you know, uh, there are certain things that a male gives his son that a mother cannot give him, no matter how you slice it, dice it, you know. And there are a lot of parents, don't get me wrong, there are a lot of mothers that do an outstanding job raising their children by themselves. Yeah, we're not knocking that. We're not no, knocking not knocking it by no means. I'm just saying that, in my opinion, two sometimes is better than one if two are working together. Now, I'm not talking about where you got two and somebody's abusive and somebody's doing this, but I'm saying when two are working together, it's better than one working by itself because there are so many things that, that you benefit. I look back in my own life, and I'm grateful and very fortunate that I grew up with both of my parents, my father and my mother. There were certain things that my mother gave me that my father couldn't give me. But there are certain mm-hmm. things that my father gave me that my mother could not give me. And so that balance is what 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 I, I value because without that, I don't think that I would have survived some things. There are some things that my father, I could sit down and talk to my father and express my rage, my anger about some things, and he could talk me back into the fold. There are some things that I was dealing with that I could go to my mother and she could hug me and say, sit down, baby, on my lap and let me talk to you. So there's a balance that takes place, you know, and she could hug me and just squeeze me and just rock me. And then you feel like, wow, I'm safe now. But then there's some things that my father would explain to me that gave me insight. My father explained to me about there's a way of thinking. One is your emotions and one is something thinking from your intellect, you know, and sometimes your emotions can take you places that had you thought about it, you would realize that wasn't a great idea. So I get it. And, you know, Mike brought up a good point. You know, his father meant the world to him. And most people that grow up in a household where two are working together, they usually see the benefits of that. Yeah, you know, the statistic you shared a minute ago um, really caught me by surprise. Uh, that, that's interesting. But here's another one that might catch people by surprise. And by the way, in a minute, if I don't forget, I like to talk about looking back a little bit because as much as I agree with you that we, uh, uh, you know, just casting aspersion and assigning blame doesn't seem to solve a lot. 
But understanding how we got here and what is continuing because of what we that got is here key. is key. But to, before we get to that, though, I just want to throw out the other statistic that you kind of reminded me of when you gave that 180-something to 20-something or whatever that was a minute ago. Um, and uh, you could almost say that one kind of privilege would be growing up in a home where there are two parents. And if you have that, you have a certain privilege. You have a certain, you have a certain benefit. You may not even realize it. But uh, in American society, irrespective of race or ethnicity or sex, if you're in a two-parent home, and like you said a minute ago, not an abusive one or something like that, but just a normal two-parent home, your odds of going forward and being successful and having a fulfilling life go way up. The poverty rate, here's something interesting. The poverty rate among two-parent black families is only 7%. Compare that to the poverty rate among whites who have single-parent homes, and that's 22%. So you're going to be better off financially if you're in a two-parent black home than in a single-parent white home. Um, and so, if nothing else, I would hope that anyone listening to this would really, really encourage and do everything they can to ensure that you know families actually are families, that moms and dads get together, get married, take responsibility, and stay married. Uh, so, it's, it's interesting how important it really becomes. Doc, you know, but, uh, hey, what's... Go ahead. I, I, I can speak to both sides of that. Let me, let, let me share something with you right quick. So my father grew up in a household where it was just a single parent household. It was him, his mother, and his grandmother and the kids, right? And he tell the story how he had to work. He was the second oldest. So he and his older brother had to work, shining shoes, throwing papers, working, doing little odd jobs to help out around the house. Sister had to do the same thing. And when you look at it, his brothers, the younger ones, benefited from that because they were able to go to school and go into college and graduate. But the first two, three older kids spent their time working, 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 helping them around the house. And so while I grew up, while I grew up in a two parent household, after the passing of my wife, I became a single parent. And I can tell you being a single parent is no easy chore because that means you become mother, father, you become all you become end all you become the beginning and the end and so i understand i have a lot of respect and i say this everywhere i go when i talk i have a lot of respect for single parents that are trying to do it on their own it is no easy task i say all the time all the time i wish many a times many a nights i cried trying to figure this out how I'm going to make ends meet, tie them, untie them, and do so many things, robbing Peter to pay Paul, eating off the dollar menu so I could do A, B, C, and D, and trying, still trying to maintain my sanity. So being a single parent in America, and especially, especially if you fall somewhere in that medium income range or below, then you catch an H-E-L-L capital. Now, if you got yeah. plenty of money like you, then that's a different story. Of course, I live over here in privilege. So, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. No issues over here. Never had a problem. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> uh, let me. Uh, both of these topics are really interesting to me. I, I'm trying to figure out which way to go. But you know, the thing you mentioned a minute ago, because you know, we we often hear about slavery, Jim Crow. Uh, that that sometimes feels like ancient history. Why are we still talking about it? But that all moved into more recent things and kind of evolved into more recent things are a little more subtle. But if you just take a look at something like HUD policy, 
uh, you know, housing, urban development policies. You mentioned that they actually sort of led to this. We need a single person. We, you know, we don't, we're not, we can't allow two people, a husband and a wife to have this housing. So you're, you know, almost having policies that are forcing single parent situations and not encouraging getting married and staying together and taking that kind of responsibility. But there were other HUD policies that, that uh, have existed up until far more recent policies, uh, recent times. And those include some of those um, lending policies that favored whites over blacks. It's really interesting. If you go back and do the research and you take a look at who were getting the HUD loans back in the day, and uh, you take a look at some city like Chicago and look at the map at who got the loans and who didn't. And white communities were getting them, black communities weren't. And then uh, they were basically allowing predatory lending practices, predatory lease to own practices, and very, very, very destructive. And so if we're going to really fix some of these policies and, and change things going forward, we have to be honest about how we got here. Excuse me. No you, no, you didn't lose me. The information you gave was so powerful, it almost choked me. You know what I was thinking yeah. about when you were talking? How do we get here? How do we get here? And you ask the question all the time, how do we get here? You have to look at from whence we've come to where we are right now. Because I saw a commercial years ago, and it gave the example of we were running a 100-yard dash, and I started you at the 50-yard dash. I started you at the 50-yard uh, yard line, and we were running 100 yards. The odds of you winning are highly in your favor because you started 50 yards in front of me. And so if you look back over the history of our country and you just be brutally honest with you and honest with yourself, you will see that that 50 yards that I'm referencing metaphorically came into play because you realize it wasn't until recent times that uh, women and blacks could even vote. Segregation, uh, we talking as 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 recently as 19, what, 60s? You're talking 50s and 60s. Yeah. So you're talking, what, 58 years ago, right? Yeah, about time you and I were being born. Right, about time you and I were being born, right? So the head start had already begun to come into play because they were so far ahead. So now to try to play catch up, you know, is almost unrealistic because you yeah. have generations of, of families and people that have went forth, you're just now at the masses of people talking about, in the black community, PhDs was not a common thing. Matter of fact, yeah. matter of fact, a college degree was not that very common, okay? When I was growing up, they always said, well, you know what? Go to finish high school. There are very few families talking about go to graduate school. Hmm. And so that whole mindset, that whole, there, there are so many things that we could spend hours research on talking about how we got here. You know, so I, I some guess. Of those, some of those uh, are, are so recent. I mean, the things that you and I are talking about, the things that started changing about the time you and I were born. Uh, yeah, but the, these HUD policies, they continued up into the 70s and 80s before they got adjusted. Uh, and, uh, and, and so forth. And then, and, and even though those, thankfully, those rules have been adjusted now and, uh, that's not allowed anymore. But, uh, as you said, you and I have said a couple of times, 
we have to deal with some of the subtle, uh, I guess, this mentality mindset in addition to policy. I think policy is crucial. And uh, having laws that do not allow certain kinds or any kind of discrimination. And I think my daughter is a realtor. And uh, thankfully, there are policies in place when it comes to selling a home where there's a hands length distance, arms length distance between buyers and sellers. So I can't discriminate in selling my home very easily. But, you know, it happens. It happens all the time anyway. All day, every day. All day, every day. But why, you know, the question always, one of the things I, I learned is, is that why? Let's unpackage this. Why is that? Why do you think a system was created to hold a group or people back? Why do you think that? So, you know, Power, I think that is for control, I think we're, resources. Yeah. yeah, and I think it has to also to do with uh, some things that are deep in the human soul, uh, pride uh, and, uh, and so forth, that, uh, you know, the, the Bible would just describe as our inherited nature, our sin, sinful nature. Uh, and then uh, it gets passed down, and sometimes the oppressors and the oppressed are all victims of what they have been taught, what they have heard, things that have been instilled in them, and they've heard them all these years, and they sort of just believe it because it's what they grew up in. And somehow you got to challenge. We have to challenge those mindsets because it's not nothing's really going to change unless people's minds change and and the way they think through these things and what they understand uh, changes. I, you know, I, I agree wholeheartedly with you. We are great. Make no mistake about it. But we could be greater if yep. we lose some of the isms that we have. If we realize that, hey, you know, while you may be a, a lighter pigmentation, I may be a darker pigmentation. It has nothing to do with our ability to love, work to, and live together, worship together, cry together. And many times, you know, when we go to war, you know, we die together. And so I think that we have to realize in our society that those things that were set out to divide us in our history, we've got to, reu- uh, got to come together and reunite. We've got to realize that we're in this together. You know, I look at the statistics about who the COVID-19 is affecting. You know, the, you look at the populations um, that is had is affected. You look at the races that has affected some more than others. And you might ask the question, well, why is that? Well, there are so many components to that. Access to healthcare, you know, pre-existing conditions. You know, so many things that play in and weigh into that. Social conditions. I mean, social uh, conditions. So I think that there's so many things that if we you just, know, you point out one all the time that uh, you and I sometimes joke uh, more when we're off the air because we get ourselves in trouble if we do it on the air. But uh, it, it, this is not really a joke, though. It's just reality. Um, the truth is I do sit out here in a home in the middle of some acreage, and I am blessed to have a job that allows me to work entirely from home. Uh, you know, unfortunately, the work gets harder when you're working from home because you never seem to know when to turn it off and, and go home because you're, you're already home. Um, and so you're still sending emails and whatever at 10, 11 o'clock at night. But the reality is, you, you, you can address this a lot better than me, but there's a whole lot of people who just can't shelter at home in isolation and continue to work and get a paycheck. By, no, by no means can they do it. You know, this society is built on economics. It's ba- built on money, bottom line. And so yep. we can't stay closed forever 
But there are some that could stay at home forever because they have the money to do that, i.e. you. And so, yeah, you. So, you know, you, 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 you're you right. You can afford to stay at home in Acres and, and issue orders from the phone and uh, video conferences. And, and you know, you deserve that. You earned that, you know. You did. You know, I, I, I know you and I can say you work hard. So, but what I'm saying is that if we just were to unpackage that, there, there were some benefits um, in the 50s and the 60s and the 40s and the 30s. Oh, the further you go back, the more beneficial you became. But there were a lot of benefits to being a member of one particular group. They were just benefits. And, you know, and there's nothing wrong with us saying, you know what, that's something we have to accept in our society. It existed. You know, no one is saying that, hey, I'm going to hold you accountable. I don't, I dislike you because of what your ancestors no, we, we, we're way beyond that. But we have to acknowledge the things that have happened. And then a lot of people saying, well, okay, now we acknowledge it. What happened? Now we just talk. So when we see issues come up, we have to be able to talk about them. We have to be able to say, okay, how is it in the 21st century, in 2020, a man jogging, running, whatever the case may be, and people think that they have the right to chase him with guns. That's a mentality, yep. that's a mindset that has existed based on pre-existence, preconditions that they thought that, hey, this is all right because I can do this because I'm this. And I've said this on many occasions and I'll say it again. How I see you will determine what I do to you and how I treat you. If I see you as less than, I treat you as less than. If I see you as equal to me, there are certain things I will not do to you. And so wow. how we see one another affects a lot, a lot of a lot of strange relationships. You know, you don't treat people a certain way if I see you as my equal. If that would have been a white female that walked in that same house and jogged down the street, they'd have been driving down the asking her, did she need a ride? Whistling at her or something. You'd have never yeah. saw shotguns. Never. That is almost undoubtedly the case. Of course. Uh, and so, as we have uh, only a short while here to wrap up, I'm sitting here thinking about how to do what you just said, which is basically uh, look at things through a different lens, look at things the right way. And I'm just reminded of uh, something we did many years ago. You know, I was 22 years old. We started the church in Southwest Atlanta. And what we had all over Atlanta, and unfortunately, we still have to today, we had a lot of black churches and we had a lot of white churches. And even though some of the white churches wishes, you know, were hoping that they could grow out of that, it was kind of too late. Uh, they had set their positions a long time previously and changing is hard. And the same thing is true in some of the black churches I would see. They're, they they would love it when I showed up, but not many people looking like me showed up. <laughs> and so we started the church and we decided before we ever started that this would be a multicultural, multiracial church. And so uh, Ken Baker, a good black friend of mine who was in seminary with me, Tori Mund, an Asian, good friend of mine, from Bible college with me, seminary with me. We started the church together and we decided on day one that it would be black, white, and Asian because that's what the community was, black, white, and Asian in Southwest Atlanta. And by worshiping together and eating meals together and hanging out in each other's homes together, we got past all those stereotypes in a hurry. And we kind of found out we're all just folks. We're just people. We have some good things about us. We have some bad things about us. We're just people. We started loving each other. You know what? If you worship with people, hang out with them, and pray with them, it's hard to continue to stereotype that group. No, and, uh, 
you have know, all of this. You know what I saw, Doc? <clears throat> about uh, about a year ago, I went to a church and they have what they call joint services. So a predominantly white church has uh, so often they go and they fellowship with a predominantly black church, right? And they alternate right. locations. And so the church is hosting the, the, the service. They feed the other church in um, after service. And so they do this periodically. Well, I went to one of the services and I was sitting there, right? So it was the white church was hosting the black church. What really blew my mind when I sat in that church is that the all white choir was singing a black gospel Negro hymn. And I was like, wow, we are, slow, we are slowly changing in America because I can promise you in my that life, you would have never saw that. You would have never saw that 40 years ago. I like that as our ending place. So let's, let's think about that. All of us out there listening in your churches and whatever other social gatherings you have, let's pull the world together. This has been black and white. And we just talked.